This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Greys are the most iconic alien race and represent the most widely recognized pop culture version of extraterrestrial life. Is their similar appearance throughout history due to cultural phenomenon, or is it because they really do exist? If you enjoy this episode and want to hear more of the craziest stories in UFO history, check out the Extraterrestrial Podcast. There are nearly 50 episodes available to binge right now. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The mist was thick, the air filled with an almost electric crackle of anticipation. The crowd of spectators stared agog at the strange vessel before them, a flying saucer illuminated with a million blinking lights. They were waiting, but they didn't have to wait long. Suddenly, a horde of creatures spilled from the mouth of the ship. With child-sized bodies and enormous heads, they seemed almost all eyes, pitch-black, inky eyes, as unfathomable and endless as space itself. They were sinewy, doll-like with their androgynous, naked figures. And they were gray. So goes one of the final scenes of Steven Spielberg's 1977 film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's fiction. But the extraterrestrials it presents are a disturbingly common fiction. They're the universally accepted image of alien and have been for decades. The image has had remarkable staying power. Is that just coincidence? Or is there another, darker reason for the fact that we can't seem to shake these odd creatures? Some people believe there is. They believe greys are real, walking amongst us, just half-hidden by multinational government conspiracies. Seeping into the world through stories and strange sightings, waiting to be found. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? 
Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history, and yet over the course of 46 episodes, we have yet to confirm the existence of alien life. Today, on our final episode before hiatus, that might just change. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Unfortunately, this is the end of our journey for now. After countless UFO sightings, probings, and hypnosis sessions, we're taking a break on producing any episodes of Extraterrestrial for a while. As we wind down, we want to say thanks to you, our loyal listeners. We wouldn't have been able to go this far without your support. We truly appreciate all of the kind words, thoughtful reviews, encouraging emails, and fun suggestions we've received this year. Extraterrestrial has been a wonderful journey through the galaxy, and we thank you for coming along for the ride. Rest assured, all episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals will remain free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. All our cases will be there. We've had cases that ranged from the obviously fake to the compellingly mysterious. The one thing that's certain is that no matter the time or place, humanity longs to know what lies beyond the stars. We're constantly reminded of the classic quote from sci-fi writer Arthur C. Clarke. He once said, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. And we remain terrified this week as we explore the most iconic alien race the Greys. They represent the most widely recognized pop culture version of extraterrestrial life, and they show up everywhere from science fiction novels to real-life UFO sightings. While their personalities, behaviors, and apparent intentions are remarkably varied, their appearance is always the same. Today, we'll trace the history of this strange race and determine whether their persistence in the extraterrestrial record is the result of an incredibly unusual cultural phenomenon or if they actually exist. To trace our way through the history of the Greys, we have to go all the way back to 1893 and the office of British author H.G. Wells. Wells was a 27-year-old aspiring writer. He had one nonfiction book under his belt, a textbook of biology, and was beginning to write short, humorous articles for periodicals like the now-defunct Pall Mall Budget. In the fall of 1893, he was at work on one particular story, which he would eventually title The Man of the Year Million. The piece, like most of Wells' work at the time, took a facetious tone. It claimed to be a review of a great unwritten volume by Professor Holtzkoff of Weissnickville University. This work, once it was written, would detail the Man of the Year Million per the article's title. And Wells' writing took on the task of explaining what this man would look like and how he would behave. Now, not only is the volume Wells purports to be reviewing unwritten, but Holtzkopf is German for blockhead. And even Weissnicht Vo refers to an imaginary city in Thomas Carlyle's satirical 1833 work, Sartor Resartus. From there, the city's name became code for a more general, 
indefinite, unknown, or imaginary place, as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it today. Wells' readers at publications like the Pall Mall Budget would have been accustomed to the thriving tradition of British satire, and to these primed readers, all of the above were immediate giveaways that the article was an extended show of wit, a joke. The joke being about the bizarre Man of the Year Million, described by this imaginary professor in his imaginary book. A being of brain rather than body, the titular man's stature was small while his head was large. His skin was gray, and his face was described as follows. Eyes large, lustrous, beautiful, soulful, Above them, no longer separated by rugged brow ridges, is the top of the head, a glistening, hairless dome, terete and beautiful. No craggy nose rises to disturb by its unmeaning shadows the symmetry of that calm face. No vestigial ears project. The mouth is a small, perfectly round aperture, toothless and gumless, jawless, unanimal, no futile emotions disturbing its roundness as it lies, like the harvest moon or the evening star, in the wide firmament of the face. The description presents unnerving features as great positives. This future man won't need most of the body parts we hold dear, such as ears or teeth, because he relies on intellect alone for survival. He has evolved beyond those animalistic traits that define the modern biological man, such as the need to chew food. Instead of eating, he immerses himself in nutritive fluid, paddling about with his pals instead of sitting down to dinner. No more table manners, just communal baths. The article was accompanied by an illustration of a creature resembling a fetus. Man's future, apparently, was visually similar to his past as a baby. To readers in 1893, the irony of the whole thing was hilarious, or meant to be. But this portrayal of the man of the year million also presents something that sounds a whole lot like the Greys. To UFO enthusiasts in the 20th century, the image seems less amusing and more intriguing. And what Wells did next only increased the intrigue. His career accelerated. He went on to author dozens of novels, short stories, and books of social commentary before he died in 1946. But in generations to come, he'd be best known as the father of science fiction. One of his most famous sci-fi texts was the 1898 novel, The War of the Worlds, which documents an alien invasion of Earth. The main invading race of aliens in the text wasn't the greys, but the Martians, octopus-like creatures made up of a disembodied head with 16 tentacles clustered next to the beast's mouth. But the greys show up in the novel too. No longer a description for the evolution of man, Wells transposes his Man of the Year Million into a subjugated alien race that acts as food for the dominant Martians. In 1898, the Greys became aliens. Interestingly, in the novel, Wells referred back to his article on the Man of the Year Million as a prophecy, without mentioning that he himself had written it. In the context of the book, the article, or prophecy, was a real-world text published in an 1893 periodical. 
Most readers assumed the article was simply an invention of the 1898 novel, considering that the book is fiction after all. In fact, the article was real, but it too was fiction and written by the same author as the novel itself. In the context of Wells' career, this provided a delightful, if somewhat mind-boggling example of just how meta his work could be. But for UFO enthusiasts, it also hinted at an intriguing possibility. What if the War of the Worlds was right, and that first text mentioning gray-like creatures really was a prophecy? Not about man's future, but about a real alien race. Wells did present the gray creatures as fiction, but many things he presented as fiction in his novels turned out to be real eventually. His writing seemingly predicted everything from the airplane and the atomic bomb to satellite television and the World Wide Web. One example shows up in his 1923 text, Men Like Gods, where Wells presents a futuristic utopia where people communicate exclusively through wireless systems which look a whole lot like a mix of voicemail and email. Simon James, professor of English studies at Durham University and former editor of the official journal of the H.G. Wells Society explained, Wells was an imagination in a hurry. He wanted to get to the future sooner than it was going to happen. That's why he's so predictive in his writing. He was a true visionary. And perhaps his vision of aliens in The War of the Worlds was yet another example of his imagination spying a future reality. Even for Wells, the gray-like aliens he described in The War of the Worlds seemed to have struck a nerve. He couldn't quite get them out of his head. The War of the Worlds wasn't Wells' only science fiction novel to describe extraterrestrial beings in terms matching his Man of the Year Million article. His 1901 book, The First Men in the Moon, presented the moon's inhabitants similarly. He described them as follows. They resembled man in maintaining the erect attitude and in having four limbs, and I have compared the general appearance of their heads and the jointing of their limbs to that of insects. I have mentioned, too, their fragile slightness. Wells called these creatures Selenites after the Greek moon goddess Selene. He also mentioned their short stature and their big heads, as well as their sophistication and intelligence. Very gray-like in appearance. Interestingly, however, the gray-like aliens Wells described in each of his texts played very different roles and exhibited very different behaviors. Here, they maintained their own complex society beneath the surface of the moon, but in the War of the Worlds, they were little more than chattel, simply food for the dominant Martians. Most readers attribute the evocative imagery and differing storylines in both texts to Wells' rich, vivid imagination, that same imagination that won him the title Father of Science Fiction. But just like his prescient descriptions of technologies resembling atomic bombs and internet, perhaps Wells' gray-like aliens were also an eerily accurate prediction of something real to come. His work certainly went on to influence other authors, but these strange aliens started showing up in real-world extraterrestrial sightings, too. Coming up, 
we'll discuss the evolution of the Greys from the stuff of satire and sci-fi to the stuff of news reports and exposés. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1893, the first written record of a huge-headed, lustrous-eyed humanoid appeared in the work of science fiction author H.G. Wells. It wasn't long before these creatures were populating other science fiction books. One was a 1933 Swedish novel by Gustav Sandgren, who used the pen name Gabriel Linde. Like Wells' aliens, Sandgren's extraterrestrials had large heads and eyes, weak chins, and a short stature. But Wells' work didn't just influence other sci-fi writers. It also inspired one of the greatest pranks in U.S. history. In 1938, Orson Welles, no relation to H.G., narrated and directed an American radio play version of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. The 60-minute broadcast presented the first two-thirds of the show as a news bulletin, describing odd explosions on Mars, followed by an apparently unrelated report of a strange object falling in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. These news reports were interspersed with musical interludes like any radio broadcast. But then they started to get stranger and scarier. Martians emerged from the fallen cylindrical object in Grover's Mill, and then they attacked. Listeners were terrified. Thanks to Orson Welles' ingenious presentation, a swath of the public was convinced the story wasn't fiction, but breaking news. Panic erupted. According to some reports, up to a million people ran out into the streets, their eyes trained on the sky, looking for descending aliens. The scope of the hysteria was likely exaggerated by contemporary newspapers looking to discredit radio as a reputable news source. But the central fact remains, the radio play was extremely convincing. This was in part because of the news bulletin gimmick, but it was also because the story was so compelling. H.G. Wells' extraterrestrials seemed real and their ties to reality would only get stronger in the years to come, beginning with Barney and Betty Hill. Frequent listeners may recall our episodes on their story. Middle-aged interracial American couple Barney and Betty Hill claimed that they'd been abducted from rural New Hampshire back in September 1961 by a crew of aliens. Throughout the Cold War and its accompanying space race and technological innovation, there was increasing real-world focus on extraterrestrial life, something we've discussed throughout this show. Humanity's eyes were on the sky in a new way, and they were seeing strange things up there, including plenty of UFO sightings. Some were easily explained as human aircraft, satellites, or other airborne technologies. Others were harder to identify. 
But the story of Barney and Betty Hill was one of the first ever reports of an alien abduction. The Hill couple shared graphic details of abuse apparently suffered at the hands of their alien captors. Their story gained international attention, making headlines far beyond their native New Hampshire. Their story came together slowly with the help of hypnosis, and at different stages of their psychological evaluations, the account played out differently. But the predominant image of the Hill abductors was of tiny humanoid creatures with enormous, slanted black eyes. In other words, the greys. Somehow, the same visual characteristics that H.G. Wells noted in that 1893 article were showing up in a 1961 New Hampshire alien abduction. But the presence of the greys didn't end with the case of Barney and Betty Hill. In the late 1970s, UFO researchers delved into an alleged extraterrestrial crash in Roswell, New Mexico. They published their findings in a 1980 book called The Roswell Incident. Thanks in part to their investigation, the Roswell crash, which apparently occurred in 1947, is one of the most well-known extraterrestrial sightings of all time. But it's iconic for a reason. The list of people who may have seen or who may know something about Roswell is endless. Like the story of Barney and Betty Hill, we've covered the sighting at Roswell in detail in earlier episodes. But what we'd like to focus on here is the testimony of one nurse whose story was shared secondhand in a 1991 book by Donald Schmidt and Kevin Randall called UFO Crash at Roswell. Glenn Dennis, a Roswell resident working at a local funeral home in 1947, told the nurse's story to the book's authors. He was apparently a friend of hers whom she confided in, and although he never named her, he explained what allegedly happened to her. For the sake of this episode, we'll call her Lucy. Lucy was working at the Roswell Army Airfield as a nurse in early July 1947. She walked into the infirmary as usual, but she'd missed a memo telling all regular nursing staff to stay away. She wasn't supposed to be there. But she couldn't unsee what she encountered inside that building. The infirmary was swarming with men in plastic sanitary suits. Their faces were covered with surgical masks, and they were all examining a pair of cadavers in unzipped body bags. The corpses were small and mangled, the size of children, but their proportions weren't those of children. Atop their gaunt little bodies were large, bulbous heads, completely bald, and on those heads, enormous, slanting eyes. But few other distinct facial features. No ears, teeth, noses. Just like H.G. Wells had prophesied. The Roswell aliens were, like the Barney and Betty Hill aliens, greys. But this still wasn't the end of the real-world grey sightings. In 1987, writer Whitley Strieber, up to this point best known as a horror novelist, wrote a non-fiction book on his personal experiences with extraterrestrial life. Called Communion, the book chronicled Strieber's terrifying, inexplicable flashbacks and experiences of memory blanks, or what he called lost time. 
Through hypnosis, he was able to parse these anomalies and identify them as the after-effects of his abduction and torture by extraterrestrials, namely the greys. The species was highlighted in the illustration on the cover of the book. It depicted a pale grayish creature with enormous inky black eyes slanting upwards towards the sides of the face. The head itself was bald, pointed at the chin, featuring the tiniest lips and nose. It was poised on the slightest of gray necks. Not a substantially different appearance from H.G. Wells' original descriptions. And an appearance that Strieber was determined to make sure was just right. The artist who created that cover image, Ted Seth Jacobs, explained the process behind the art. As I sketched, Strieber would indicate how to change the portrait so that it would more match what he saw. It was, I believe, the process used by police sketch artists. Every last detail was corrected according to his instructions. At one point, he said the image corresponded exactly to what he had seen. With Whitley beside me for the subsequent session, I began to paint the image on a wooden prepared panel going through the same process as for the drawing until Whitley finally said the image was exact. The book was a bestseller, and Jacob's cover art became one of the most recognizable images of the Greys, with its enormous slanted inky eyes and its otherwise delicate tiny facial features. Even after Streber's books, the Grey sightings kept coming. In the early 1990s, French ufologist and science fiction writer Jimmy Guillou wrote two docudramas about the Greys, or as he called them in French, Les Petits Gris, the Little Greys. He also regularly appeared on French radio programs to explain his beliefs about the extraterrestrials. These creatures, he explained, were no invention of his imagination, but one of 30 real, factual alien races who had visited Earth. And they didn't just leave. The Greys are still here on our planet, in hiding underground and on military bases. Guillaume's theories were often greeted with laughter by French audiences, but he had a response to their dismissal. There was a far-reaching conspiracy to encourage mockery of UFO theories. Governments around the world were behind every laugh that greeted him. They were hiding evidence of aliens for their own secretive, nefarious reasons. Guillaume insisted that the proof of the Greys' existence was in the research, if you looked hard enough at incidents like the 1947 Roswell crash. And that's exactly what filmmaker Ray Santilli did in 1995. He claimed to have obtained film depicting the autopsy of a Grey recovered from Roswell. At first, it seemed he had 22 reels of 16mm film, all original to the 1947 recording. He released these striking images to the public as the short film Alien Autopsy. It showed alarming footage of a creature that looked just like a gray, with its slight sinewy body and enormous head. It was prone on a medical table. A doctor in a hazmat suit methodically dissected the corpse. It's an arresting, disturbing scene. With questionable origins. In 2006, Santilli's story changed. He admitted the film he'd released was not original footage of the alien autopsy, 
but a reconstruction of a film he'd seen in 1992. The original 16mm film had degraded and became unusable, hence his re-filming, he explained. The process for making the movie sounded like a lot of fun, as Santilli described it. John Humphreys, an artist and sculptor, was contracted to construct two dummy alien bodies. He filled latex casts with sheep brains set in raspberry jam, chicken entrails, and knuckle joints. Humphreys then played the role of the medical examiner in the film, cutting into his creation for maximum creepy effect. After filming, the team disposed of the mutilated alien corpses by cutting them into small pieces and distributing them in trash cans across London. This was an extensive, comprehensive admission of exactly how Santilli created his sinister fake. And there's no hard evidence that the original film Santilli apparently based his reconstruction on ever existed. But the filmmaker maintained that his reconstruction was a faithful copy of something real. Regardless, by the new millennium, the real-world gray sightings were piling up. Even today, the majority of extraterrestrial sightings report gray-like creatures more often than any other kind of alien. But alongside these real-world sightings, the cultural references were piling up too. The scene described in our teaser from Steven Spielberg's 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind doesn't claim to depict a real-life alien encounter. Like H.G. Wells' work back in the 1890s, it presents the greys as fiction, a positive, if mysterious and unsettling fiction. In Spielberg's film, the greys are benevolent creatures. They return a three-year-old boy to his family, unharmed and happy, along with several pilots who've been missing since World War II. The pilots haven't aged. It was a successful, influential fiction, too. The film was a critical and commercial success, gaining eight Academy Award nominations and raking in over $300 million at the box office. That's over one and a quarter billion today. But it wasn't the only piece of culture to tackle the greys in the later half of the 20th century. The X-Files, which first aired in 1993, also featured gray-like aliens, again as fiction, a terrifying fiction here. Other science fiction TV shows followed suit. Dark Skies, Stargate SG-1, the list goes on. Then the phenomena of the greys spread further. They weren't just showing up in science fiction movies and TV. They started appearing everywhere, in video games, toy stores, comedies like South Park and People of the Earth. Today, we see them on our iPhones as emojis. Little children dress up as greys for Halloween. When they draw spaceships, the faces peering out of the windows are gray faces. These extraterrestrials have become so iconic that they've lost the spooky factor that originally defined them, even when they weren't behaving badly. They've become so familiar that they're harmless. Today, most people would have trouble calling to mind any other image of extraterrestrial life. As the Cold War and the space race recede into the past, Fewer people's minds are on the sky the way they were in the second half of the 20th century. There aren't as many real-life UFO sightings these days. In 2018, multiple major websites for reporting UFO sightings said the number of tips they received had gone down 45% since 2014. That's nearly cut in half. 
To many people today, Roswell is just a tourist town with a hokey alien theme or the name of a teen TV show. And yet, the Greys live on. For some extraterrestrial enthusiasts, that seems like a dead giveaway that they're more than just the product of Cold War paranoia and the UFO zeitgeist. They both preceded and outlasted that epoch in Earth's global history. But if the Greys are more than just another alien story, does that mean they're walking amongst us or hovering somewhere up in the sky? Or is there another explanation? Coming up, we delve into whether the Greys have become the alien race because they're real or not. Now back to the story. In the second half of the 20th century, the rate of UFO sightings increased drastically, and some of the most iconic ones featured the Greys, small humanoid aliens with enormous heads and eyes atop sinewy, childlike bodies. They abducted Betty and Barney Hill. They were at Roswell. They had encounter after encounter with real-world writers who then recorded their experiences in books sold on nonfiction shelves across the world. But the Greys have come to populate the human world even more frequently as fictional characters across media, from film and TV to advertisements to our emoji keyboards. The Greys are everywhere. What UFO researchers want to know is if that's because they're real. There's no evidence to suggest that the first man to record gray-like aliens in writing, H.G. Wells, believed they existed. But he did call the first essay describing them a prophecy in one of his novels. Perhaps it really was a prophecy, considering the fact that these same aliens went on to appear in many real-life UFO sightings. But let's revisit some of the major events in which the Greys played a role and examine just how believable they were. First, there was Barney and Betty Hill's abduction. It reportedly happened in 1961, but the Hills didn't go public with their story until 1965, right at the height of the UFO craze. While their story with its abduction element was fairly innovative, it still fit into a broader UFO zeitgeist and Cold War paranoia. Plus, Barney and Betty were an interracial couple at a time when race relations were tense and rapidly changing. It was a stressful, difficult period for them. As we concluded in our episodes on their story, it seems most likely that their abduction narrative emerged out of these combined pressures with the help of hypnosis. Which is to say, they were probably never abducted, although they likely saw some kind of unidentified flying object in the mountains of New Hampshire. In their episode, we gave their story a believability rating of three, not very high. Which is to say, they likely never saw any aliens, greys or otherwise. Roswell is no different. While it was an endlessly intriguing event full of fascinating accounts, Almost all of that testimony was given decades after the fact, and most of it was secondhand. Including the story of the still unnamed nurse who suggested to UFO researchers that the aliens who crashed in New Mexico were greys. In our episodes on the Roswell incident, we gave the crash a score of four on our believability scale. Which, again, means that the nurse probably never saw the greys. In fact, she may never even have existed. 
she could easily have been a creation of the man who relayed her stories to UFO researchers. The testimony of the novelist Whitley Strieber, who reportedly had personal experiences with the Greys, was never corroborated by any evidence. Likewise with the docudramas of French writer and filmmaker Jimmy Guillou. Finally, Ray Santilli's film, Alien Autopsy, which seemed at first to be remarkable evidence that the Greys existed, turned out to be a fake. So all of these real-world sightings, which lend the reality of the Greys' credibility, aren't so credible. But the question still remains, why is this image of the Grey aliens everywhere if they're not real? There is another possibility. Let's go back to H.G. Wells for a moment. He wasn't only the first to write about the Greys. He was one of the first to write about aliens at all. Iconic works like his 1898 War of the Worlds influenced generation after generation of science fiction readers and writers, because at the time, there wasn't much else to inspire them. Hence his title, Father of Science Fiction. His cultural influence, particularly on the idea of aliens, is hard to underestimate. By the time extraterrestrial sightings started picking up speed during the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s, his writing had been shaping the fictional discourse around aliens for over 50 years. We've discussed some of the many sci-fi stories influenced by H.G. Wells. Orson Welles' 1938 radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds, Steven Spielberg's 1977 Close Encounters of the Third Kind. These were far from carbon copies of H.G. Wells' work, but they were participating in a long lineage of storytelling that began with Wells and developed from there, spreading from the world of novels and movies to the iPhone's emoji keyboard. Culture is funny like that. It's always characterized by memes, following the original definition posited by evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. That is to say, per Dawkins' definition, it's full of eternally repeating images, always varying slightly, but ingraining certain ideas into the very fabric of our society along the way. And as we've seen throughout this show, extraterrestrial sightings have long been tied to the ebbs and flows of cultural anxieties and concerns. They've also long been tied to our storytelling, something else we've seen throughout this show. Many alien sightings blend fact with fiction, or outright fiction with more fiction, to create compelling narratives. This is all to say, science fiction-based storytelling highlighting the greys seeped into the broader cultural consciousness. It's influenced everything from film to children's toys, and it seems natural that it also started influencing fake alien sightings. The fact that there's no particularly believable real-world Grey sightings actually supports this idea. The Greys have always, it seems, been a story. There's still the question of why, out of all the aliens H.G. Wells described, it was the Greys that caught on. But there may be an evolutionary reason for that. The large-eyed, big-headed, small-bodied Greys, while admittedly creepy-looking, are nevertheless evocative of children, and humans are evolutionarily primed to find children, or anything childlike, cute. 
In other words, we see large eyes and a small body, whether on a puppy, a baby, or maybe an alien, as attractive and adorable. Perhaps this attraction helped the image stick, the cultural image. So the alternative possibility to the idea that greys are real is that they are a deeply ingrained cultural icon, one so deeply ingrained that it starts to feel real, so deeply ingrained that when someone wants to lie about an alien sighting or even jumps through a few mental hoops to manufacture one without meaning to lie, it's the greys that they reach for. It is a convincing solution, but the fact does stand. Just like there's some possibility that something went down with Barney and Betty Hill, and that something happened back in Roswell in 1947, there's a possibility that the Greys really did pop down to visit Earth a few times, just like H.G. Wells prophesized. After all, if they did exist, it would explain perfectly why this version of Aliens caught on with other science fiction writers and the public alike. Perhaps they're the most believable kind of aliens because on some level, they're real. That said, we give the existence of the Greys a score of 3 out of 10 on our believability scale, with 10 being the most believable and 1 being very unlikely. We assume that Wells, with his vivid, rich imagination and his love of the strange, would be on board with that. After all, until the Greys are disproven, there's always a possibility that they're out there. Just like with all our extraterrestrials. We're taking the show on hiatus after this episode, but we won't stop thinking about all the unresolved threads, the holes in the official stories, and the bizarre testimonies that we've seen while researching extraterrestrials. We've shot down plenty of wild stories that simply didn't add up. George Adomsky comes to mind, among others. But we've also seen some instances that are much harder to rationalize away. Like the Rendlesham incident in England in 1980, or the Shag Harbor crash in Canada in 1967. And always, more than anything, we've been fascinated by the very human feeling, curiosity, and belief that's gone into the winding story of extraterrestrial research on Earth. As we always say in our intro, each of these stories we've covered has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, they've been well worth exploring. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Extraterrestrial for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Thanks again for listening. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Nora Battelle with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Tim Johnson and Bill Thomas. 